Um, I think in the early stage, it is so, so, so important to have some sort of firmness of purpose. You have to have the why or the passion because that is the only thing that's going to get you through all of the no's of fundraising and all of the no's of first clients and the no's of I don't like your product and that, you know, it can be hard. It's definitely the, the most uphill slog of this journey so far has been those early stages when it's exciting because you have an idea and you have some early adoption. And when you get that first contract, it's amazing and you're, you feel so validated, but it's really hard to make sure you have the right product. And so really having the the passion and the why to get there is a characteristic that a CEO absolutely has to have if you're going to start a company like me and a little bit of crazy factor. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running Tigercom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hello, Clean Checkers, and welcome back to another episode of Scaling Clean. As listeners know, our show is tightly focused on interviewing CEOs to glean usable best practices on tips on how to build, run, and lead companies. One of the things I'm fascinated by are the backgrounds of our guests. We've had serial entrepreneurs, power sector veterans, techies, people with finance and energy trading backgrounds. But Robin Lane's our first environmental consultant by training. She's also possibly the youngest CEO we've had on the show and a new mother to boot. Robin now runs the fast-growing renewable SaaS company, Transect. It's based in Texas. She founded her company to improve on the way traditional environmental consulting firms assess potential development sites for renewable energy developers. Robin knew she was setting out to disrupt her alma mater and companies like it after spending 11 years at three different traditional environmental consulting firms. Robin, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start with your background. How would you summarize your career and how it landed you in the corner office, so to speak? Mm-hmm. So I am a biologist by training. I started out in the field 17 years ago, working for proposed land development projects. I had hiking boots and snake guards and a backpack full of water, you know, stepping over rattlesnakes, the whole thing. Um, I moved kind of out of the field um, fairly quickly after that into doing the environmental permitting and project management side, where I permitted probably over 10,000 miles of linear projects and thousands of acres of energy and real estate and infrastructure projects. In my last position before I started Transect, I was national program manager at the um, for the natural resources department at a nationwide consulting firm. So I was running a team of other people like me. And while I was running that team and trying to meet our revenue targets, I really saw a lot of the gross inefficiencies of our industry, just how laborious it was to help our customers assess just simply assess a project site. A lot of our work involved repetitive research and mm, inefficient and repetitive reporting and find, replace, save as the same reports for different clients in similar geographies, um, all while billing more hours than we needed or that I was comfortable billing, right? Because 
because revenue, hashtag revenue. And so the industry really hadn't advanced much since the 70s with the passage, a lot of passage of a lot of our nation's landmark environmental regulations like NEPA and the Endangered Species Act. And so I decided to create Transect. I was ready to leave corporate America and, and came up with this idea of creating Transect to help uh, solve these problems help our help land developers make their siting decisions faster with technology. And here we are. All right. If we split screened footage of you managing a human being for the first time in your career, and we compared it at the same time, a footage of you managing and leading now, what differences would we see? Mm. Uh, honestly, I'm still trying out, trying to figure out how to be, a good manager managing people is is very hard when you're when you're good at something i, I i've noticed <laughs> right i've noticed <laughs> like when you're good at something like environmental due diligence and permitting and field work um then the powers that be put you in charge of other people to do that and think that you're going to be good at managing them and managing people <laughs> is a completely different skill that i've had to learn over time and i've learned a lot of lessons and i've learned some of them the hard way I think what's important now about managing people as I'm still learning how to be a good manager is at least trying to create a lot more space for feedback from my team and then prioritizing finding ways to address concerns and kind of support that feedback. I think in the past I had, you know, kind of earmuffs or blinders on really driving towards revenue or project completion or, you know, I paid you to do a job, just do the thing and let me know when it's done. And that's really not, that's not a great way to be a manager. Um, I didn't, I didn't really know much back then about management, but I've been around some really wonderful staff and had some really wonderful managers at this point in time who've taught me that um, there's, there's definitely better ways to do things. And so at Transect, we, we really are culture first at this point in time, we care a lot about our people. And so I think that the manager part of me now cares a lot more about feedback and prioritizes that feedback. Got it. This is your first clean economy company. What drew you to this sector and what keeps you there? Um, well, this is my first company all in. Uh, I think it's it was a pretty logical tie-in with my background in ecology and the environment. Fun fact, I don't know if you knew this about me, Mike, but I actually used to be a zookeeper um, when I was in college. And so I've always wanted to be outside. I actually worked for an, a, a nonprofit rescue zoo, like old circus tigers and things like that. And so oh, I just have, is... I've always just had an interest in, in being outside in, um, in the, the natural wonders that, that are part of our earth. And there's a natural correlation there between the, the, the interest I've had my whole life and using that expertise to help accelerate the energy transition, which is ultimately prioritizing this world that we live on. Okay. I got to ask you because we're TigerCom, <laughs> yes. you have to tell me at least a minute of explanation about what it's like to care for tigers at a rescue. What's it like to care for a rescue tiger? <laughs> um, they're like big house cats. They don't meow, but they have this chuffing sound that they make when they're happy to see you. I'm, I'm going to try to do it. Hopefully it comes across on the microphone. It's kind of like a <laughs> sound. <laughs> and, um, and they're just big house cats. They rub up against the, against the, the cage and everything. And um, I don't know, they were, they were a very special animal to work with. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh my gosh. How long did you do that for? 
I did it for um, on and off for three years in, in college. I started out as an intern and then came on as a part-time keeper for a couple of years. If you can find me one here in the National Capital area, I'll volunteer there. That would be so cool. Yeah. Okay. If we you're okay get back scoop to and poop stuff. for a while, that's where you start. You start with the, scoop, I, with the poop scoop. <laughs> I, I have Mastiff breeds, so I've been scooping poop for 20 <laughs> years and I'm really good at it. But hey, all right. Um, I, we'll get back to what these listeners actually want to hear. Uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we've got, we got we got a little poopy in this conversation. Okay, <laughs> here we go. As you've grown in your current job, <clears throat> I'm like we were at RE Plus together, and you were matching notes with other CEOs. As you've kind of traveled around the business world in your current role, have you had a chance to compare notes with people who run companies in more mature sectors? Hmm. And if you have, have you noticed a difference in how they experience their work and what's demanded of them versus what's demanded from you as running a clean economy company? Hmm. Yeah, this question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to some of my prior experience as well, because I've not always been in the, the clean energy space. My background is in commercial real estate and traditional energy and infrastructure and transportation and some of the more legacy industries. And it feels different being in clean energy because it feels like the rallying cry of the energy transition um, is, is motivating in a different way than we find in other industries that might be motivated by um, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say like capitalism, but but kind of a more traditional business model that hasn't been created around a rallying cry of kind of more like a social mm, problem that we have, right? Um, or 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 kind of the problem of this earth that we live on, and so it really feels like it. This industry is um, has has much more of a collaborative mindset when it comes to things like technology adoption and rate of change. It also feels like the newer industry, going back to maybe my company or, or companies in my space compared to maybe more legacy companies, um, there's a lot of newer players involved, both on the supply and the demand side. And so it feels like this industry is really open-minded to that problem solving, and it really kind of creates a very fun and creative space to play in because we're all looking for new solutions and we don't have legacy processes and legacy um, methods that we're following. I love that description that I, I, boy, everything you said, I have, I love that description and everything you said resonates with my experience. Just every single word. It really, really nicely said. Okay. You quit your job tomorrow. You become a lecturer at the university of Texas's business school. Your first lecture is the role of the effective CEO. How will you explain that to your students? What are the components of the job and how would you kind of like rank them? Your, your most important thing, your next most important thing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is hard because as a, as a startup CEO, there's, there's life cycles or life stages to, to what I've done. I think there's like qualifications and things that a early stage CEO needs to have and needs to focus on. And then as I've grown my company, my focus has had to change a little bit. And so I'm going to answer this in, in a couple parts, I think. Um, I think in the early stage, it is so, so, so important to have some sort of firmness of purpose. You have to have the why or the passion 
because that is the only thing that's going to get you through all of the no's of fundraising and all of the no's of first clients and the no's of, I don't like your product. And that, you know, it can be hard. It's definitely the, the most uphill slog of this journey so far has been those early stages when it's exciting because you have an idea and you have some early adoption. And when you get that first contract, it's amazing. And you're, you feel so validated, but it's really hard to make sure you have the right product. And so really having the the passion and the why to get there is a characteristic that a CEO absolutely has to have if you're going to start a company like me. And a little bit of crazy factor because this is crazy making. <laughs> like you need to be on the scale of crazy, just like a little bit to decide you want to start your own company. I'm sure you feel the same way, Mike, as a as a as a founder of a company. It's it's it can be lonely at the top, right? <laughs> and 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 a and a trudge. Um, I think that the CEO also needs to have um, some some pretty intense technical skill in the problem they're trying to solve. So my background is in environmental consulting. It was a, it's a logical step for me to then use technology to try to solve some of the problems that I found in my industry. Uh, I think that that's really important. And then creativity and the desire to solve the problem to enough to find product market fit to where um, you basically I think I read this in a book. I think it's called Exponential Organizations. I read it early on in my career. And there's this concept of making sure that whatever you are building as a tech founder is 10x better than the current solution. And I having love that. that That's so good. Yes, because Man. it takes a lot for anybody to change the way they're doing something. It has to be 10x better in order to change the process of what you're doing it right now, change contracting, change pricing, all of that it has to be 10x better. And it takes a lot of creativity and um, steadfastness to find that solution and to get to that product market fit. Once you're, once you've, we've got product market fit, at least in, in your individual and in kind of your ideal customer profile, then you start moving into the, to the, to the growth stage. And I, we're, I think we're growth stage at this point in time. And the number one thing that I think I can do as a CEO at this point in time is hire good people because yeah. I can no longer do it on my own. It's no longer just a small team, tiger team. This tiger theme keeps coming up. It's no longer a small tiger team of people trying to build this business. It really now, the, the fate of the business is in hiring the right people. And that I think is what the number one thing that CEOs should be doing. I think secondary to that, it's continuing to define the North Star of where you want the company to go and holding, but while holding space for new ideas. I always have to, as a CEO, know where I want my company to go. But a lot has changed. The, the macro trends have changed. There's new technologies, there's new competitors, and I have to be willing to, to make space and hold space for how those new influences impact our company and where we're going. Love that. Absolutely love that. Okay, we're going to come back to hiring here. In that hypothetical classroom, several of your students approach you to ask you for advice on how they can get into the corner office that, like the one you occupy. What advice do you give them? Hmm. Yeah, I, I really feel for the current college kids. They're, they're entering the workforce in a hard time coming off the heels of COVID and recession and inflation fears and climate change. And from, from what I've read, they, there's a lot of pessimism around economic opportunity for them. 
that being said, I think my advice is fairly timeless. I think this worked well for me. And that is to master a craft, to get really, really good at something because then people will notice and doors will open. I think that the first decade out of college is about establishing a career. I mean, I started at the bottom in the field with hiking boots and a bottle of water in 105 degree heat. Like it, it sucked at times, but it is where we have to start. And I got really good at that. It's a, but it's, it's a grind and it lays the foundation for all those future opportunities. I was quite good at what I did. And I was noticed by someone who worked with our company and was hired away. And that's where I started getting into leadership positions. So being really good at what you do, I think is, is the key to having a successful career. Tangential to that as a, you know, a college grad is trying to figure out what they want to do and what they are good at. I think it's the, the word of warning is to be careful how much job hopping is done. Um, because for me, any resume that shows or hints at kind of the, that lack of commitment and that lack of trying to get good at one thing, typically that resume typically goes to the bottom of my pile. So gotcha. I think commitment and knowing that it's a bit of a grind, knowing that the, you know, that every job isn't going to be your dream job, but it helps you get really, really good at your craft is I think how you get noticed. And some of those students that seek your advice after the first lecture, they're young women. Are you going to give them a customized version of that advice for young women? (laughs) I really hate that I am saying this, but because I've gone through it in some more traditional industries, the same advice applies with the asterisk that I think we have to work a little bit harder. And I hate that, but it's true. Um, especially in fields that are traditionally dominated by men, which is, not a, which is not a new message. But I think the secret that I would give to them, the secret weapon will always be to find other women, um, build those professional and friendly relationships with, because it's almost an unspoken code that will help each other open doors, even if we have a very new or tangential relationship from whatever position we're in, because it it does feel like within industries, it's a small cohort and we want to see each other succeed. And so I would say the secret weapon is find the women in the industries and build those relationships because those women that have, that do have seats at the table and that do have those corner offices, we are very, very, very willing, at least I know I am, to take I'll take cold calls from women who are interested in doing what I'm doing or need help just because it's a small cohort and I just want to help. Nice. Okay. Let's go back to hiring. Okay. Hiring is almost always cited as one of the hardest parts of the CEO's job. What have you learned about hiring? (laughs) This may sound like a really simple answer. And this is actually something our current COO, uh, Peter at my company taught me. Always meet them in person. Always. In this age of remote work, uh, it's very tempting to do all the interviews over Zoom. And I have noticed that we have done interviews. You think you found the right candidate. You think they're everything you want them to be. And then you meet them in person. And it's a pretty immediate no. You're like, oh, wow, I'm glad I flew you here because this relationship would not have worked out. And there's just something about being in person that you can't figure out 
over Zoom or over remote. And so um, it feels like a really simple solution, but man, I think we have, I think we have made some really strong choices um, by following that rule. It's a really good rule. It's interesting. <laughs> I remember talking to somebody who ran one of the major trade shows and they said that during the pandemic, when they were trying to replicate trade shows all online, the thing that once the pandemic began to recede and they were going to bring back in-person convenings, the thing that the industry told this person and his colleagues was, we simply cannot virtually replicate the sales conversation, the mm-hmm. in-person sales conversation. So there's something about humans that we need to we need to meet in person to ground the relationship at a certain depth. And without it, it's really hard to it's hard to do the really big things if we've never met in person. And to me, mm-hmm. it's a it's a mystery why, but it makes total sense at the same time. I, I don't know if that's your thought thinking as well. Yeah, absolutely. It you can learn things and there's just a vibe when you're in person that you can't pick up on over Zoom and there's a relationship built there or or potentially built or pretty clear you don't want to build that relationship pretty quickly. And for a small company, it can be taxing to fly in four or five mm. candidates and do the whole interview thing in the dinner thing. But we've just found that it's 100% worth it. Do you have a go-to interview question? And if so, what is it? What does it tell you? It is. Um, so at this stage in where I am in running my company, I have I have folks on my leadership team that are really great at assessing actual technical skill for the different roles that we're hiring. My go-to at this point in time, because I want to make sure that we are hiring culture first and that um, I'm creating a company where people want to work. My go-to question is always, what is important to you about the place where you work? Because if we can't offer that to that person, it's not going to be a good fit. I want to make sure that it's not just about what they're doing for us, but I, as a CEO, want to make sure that if every single new person that I hire um, is coming in with an expectation of something I can meet. Otherwise, nobody's going to be happy. I love that. That's really good. Okay. In your experience running Transact, is success in business more reliant on what you choose not to do or what you choose to do? This is a kind of a complicated question. Um, my first thought is what it what is success? Really, success for me feels very much like a moving target. As soon as we at Transect meet one revenue goal or one fundraising target, there's another one right behind it giving me the next standard of success. And so I try to have a growth mindset around success by tracking what we've learned as a business, as well as what I'm learning as a leader through the trials and tribulations of growing a business. But in order to try to specifically answer the question and also to give a non-answer is I think it, I think it's both because it comes in the form of focus, I think is what this question is trying to get to is how do you focus? Um, For instance, at Transect, we do build products that our ideal customer profile wants to buy. And we make sure that we don't get distracted with moonshots and edge cases. As I mentioned in my last question, we 
do focus on culture. We don't tolerate like animosity or harshness. And so it feels like for every do, there's a don't. And it's all about focus. Because if, you, if we don't focus, then we're just distracted and all over the place. And I'm not sure that we're all rowing in the same direction. Um, so I don't know. It's not about doing or not doing. It's about knowing what's important and focusing on those things. Okay, last two questions. This, this one's my favorite. I love the answers we get back. What have you found that you need to do in, at work and at home or both that really elevate your day-to-day performance as a CEO? I, I've had every answer from one CEO boxes, another one gets up at 5.30 in the morning, another one works on antique cars, one goes to the opera, one takes hikes with her family, and another one batches electronic interruptions. So there's ways big and small people habitualize themselves in order to optimize their performance as a CEO. You're a new mom. Mm-hmm. So I know that, you know, those of us who have parent who have become parents, we've realized that children are the rock that lands in the middle of your life and everything gets squashed out to the side. <laughs> so <laughs> so th- this this optimizing performance when you're as sleep deprived as you are becomes a, probably a more, even more acute question. So I think the rawness of the answer is going to be very helpful to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's two answers here. One is what I do at work to make sure I stay focused. And this could apply for anybody in my role as a CEO, as it's been evolving from fo- early founder CEO doing everything to a scalable CEO, it's really helped. An exercise I went through recently was to list out all the things I need to accomplish in buckets and tag a percentage of my time I should be spending on those. And then I track that to make sure I'm not spending an outsized portion of my time on um things that don't impact the business and making sure I do spend a a majority of my time on things where I can have impact, like on hiring, business development, evangelizing, PR, things like that. So that's practically what I do during my day. The totally impractical and not sustainable way I'm maintaining my CEO lifestyle right now is I'm gonna gonna one up whoever gets up at 5.30, I get up at 3.30. (laughs) Not every day, but probably at least two days a week, I get up at 3.30. Sometimes it's because the baby's up awake anyways. And so I take care of her and then I go back to, uh, I go back, I get up and I start my day and I go to work and there it's an amazing, I'm a morning person. And so I've had to shift my day from ending at five or six to ending at four. So I can spend time with my family and uh, in order to make sure I have that quality concentration time. I, I've moved some of the start days of some of my times to three thirty, which is painful, but uh, I've gotten used to it, and I am so productive. I kind of look forward to it. <laughs> Do you need an alarm clock to get up at three thirty? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, yes, if I'm if I'm getting up on because uh, because I've decided to, I definitely need an alarm clock. But I, oftentimes I'm getting up because there's a little person in my house across the hallway that's yelling at me and I'll just take advantage of the (laughs) fact that I'm up anyways and start working. (laughs) All right, right on. Okay, I get it. Has your work left you a climate optimist, a climate pessimist, and why? So 
I feel like I'm typically a, a neutralist, but in this case, I'm feeling optimistic. Um, we have the energy transition has the support of the current administration, which is great. We have both kind of the appeal of, of capitalism and the court of public opinion driving the private sector to move as fast as possible to build more power gen and to get it on the grid. And that feels, that feels good for now, which is good. I also, as you mentioned, have a new baby daughter with her whole life ahead of her on this planet. And I feel like I have to be optimistic for her that she reaps the benefits in her future for what we're doing right now. So um, maybe, I, maybe I live in a bubble, but I feel optimistic about all of the wonderful things that are going on in this industry right now and how collaborative it is and how creative we're trying to be. Robin Lane, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It has been a super fun conversation. I think listeners are going to really like it. They're going to benefit from it. I appreciate the work you're doing at Transact and out in the world. Uh, full disclosure to our listeners, you are a client of ours, but um, most of our CEO guests are not. And I still thought this was a fascinating conversation. So thanks for honoring us with your time. And thanks for the work you're doing out in clean economy. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. But Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendes. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.